Uh, the New Testament tells us that we need to uh, be equipped as Christians to destroy strongholds and take every thought captive to Christ. Uh, so I hope this session will uh, equip you uh, for the spiritual warfare against uh, the stronghold of scientism, uh, which I think is one of the uh, key ideological strongholds uh, of the world uh, against uh, the kingdom of heaven, or what uh, uh, St. Augustine famously described as the ongoing uh, relationship between the kingdom of heaven and the, the city uh, of the world. Uh, scientism and religious knowledge was a, a talk I was first invited to give actually at the headquarters of the British uh, Humanist Association uh, in Britain at a conference that they organised on this uh, topic and I took part in that conference uh, along with uh, British atheists such as uh, Peter Atkins and Stephen Law and you can find all of that material and videoed and so on and all of the, the presentations David Papineau uh, was giving a presentation as well and there was a, uh, uh, three presentations and then a uh, Q&A from the floor, uh, which was lovely because there's the odd man out there, the, the Christian rather than the naturalist in the room. Most of the questions from the Q&A time were directed towards me, uh, so that was lovely. And uh, you can find out more about that uh, through either the, the British Humanist uh, website, I presume, or um, if you go to my website, uh, peterswilliams.com there, uh, I've got a podcast channel and a YouTube channel and so on, and that'll have that material on there as well. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, back in the 13th century, called theology the queen of the sciences. It's a sort of jarring way of speaking in the modern world, the queen of the sciences, who is assisted by her handmaiden uh, philosophy. Uh, so I'm one of the handmaidens, as it were. I'm a philosopher. Um, the area of study we now call science, of course, didn't really exist as such back then. It was uh, called natural philosophy. It was just part of the uh, philosophical enterprise to understand reality. And the Latin word scientia, which means knowledge, uh, just came to be applied to, to any academic field of systematic study of anything. Uh, hence why Aquinas can say that theology was one of the sciences and indeed the queen of the sciences because it's the, the, the broadest, the most overarching umbrella uh, within which uh, Christians are trying to understand everything from every source of knowledge they think they have, including um, systematic theology on the Bible and looking at the, the word of God and of course looking at the works of God in nature through natural philosophy. <laughs> Alistair Donald notes that there is no single agreed definition of what science is amongst philosophers of science. You, know, you think, oh, go on, get your act together. But actually, this is quite an interesting thing. Philosophers have tried for a long time to come up with definitions of science that kind of wall it off from other ways of thinking you get knowledge about reality, such that science uh, can be elevated above those other ways of, of thinking. Um, so that you could say, you know, this is science, and that's knowledge, and that's reliable, and so on, but anything that doesn't fit this definition is pseudoscience, and that's bad, and so on. And philosophers have actually found it incredibly difficult to do that, and have basically agreed that it's a non-starter as a project. As Donald said, certain elements certainly crop up again and again when you try and define science, um, having hypotheses, doing experiments, 
having evidence, modifying those hypotheses in the light of your evidence and observations and so on. But a, a hard and fast definition of a, a sort of set of, of necessary and jointly sufficient conditions for something being science as opposed to pseudoscience or whatever has been incredibly difficult to come by. So here I tread where angels fear to tread, as it were, and offer uh, my uh, stab at a sort of uh, working definition of science, at least. Uh, and it has various elements that I'll, I'll pick out for us as we, we look at it. I'd say that science is a fallible, first-order discipline, the primary aim of which is to know as much as we can about physical reality. And by knowing about physical reality, I mean understanding it, its structure, how it works, explaining it, being able to predict things happening in it, and so on. Now, science is a fallible human project to understand the physical world. Indeed, just as theology is a fallible human project to understand the word of God and how it relates to everything else we know, Science is a fallible human project to understand the physical reality around us. And so it shouldn't come as too much as a surprise that at least some of the time, science and theology can at least appear to come into conflict with one another. (coughs) But when that appearance of conflict happens, it may of course be because our fallible understanding of the science is wrong. Or it might be that our fallible understanding of the word of God is wrong. Sometimes science help us, helps us to correct our reading of scripture. Um, you know, back in Copernicus's day, I think some Christians might appeal to the verse about the earth is founded forever and it shall not be moved. There you go. Uh, the earth doesn't move. And uh, you're proposing this theory whereby the earth orbits around the sun. <laughs> uh, but none of us today think, oh, good grief, you know, the heliocentric model of, of the Solar system is correct. We better all give up being Christians because the, the Bible has shown not, been shown not to be infallible or something like this. Um, people took another look at how they were interpreting scripture in the light of another source of knowledge. Uh, or it might be indeed because our fallible understanding of both areas is faulty. Um, and it's certainly a point to make that it's not in a, in a, uh, a situation of apparent conflict certainly not the case that automatically you must think it's the theology that's wrong and the science that's right. (laughs) By saying that science is a first order discipline, I'm pointing out that, for example, there are what you could call second order philosophical and indeed theological questions about science. When you ask questions about science, like what is science? What's the best definition of it? How does it relate to theology? And so on. You are asking questions about science that are not, notice, scientific questions. Those questions are not questions that the process of science itself could possibly answer. (laughs) You know, what experiment do you do to discover what the best definition of science is? (laughs) Or how science should relate to um, the philosophy of maths, or what have you. I mean, it's ludicrous, isn't it? So uh, that in itself, I think, shows that that science is not the be-all and end-all of human inquiry, and there's a certain necessity to having a philosophy of one's science. 
And it's about physical reality. That's the project, to understand physical reality. And that is completely compatible, of course, with thinking that there may be more to reality than the physical. More to reality than science can study. Saying otherwise has sometimes been likened to uh, you know, fishermen going out into the sea, casting their net into the sea, and the net has holes in it of a certain size, and therefore can catch fish who are, uh, they swim into it, and then you drag them, and the holes close, and so the net can catch fish that are smaller than the holes, because that's how they got in, and then they tighten up as you drag the net, and they can't get out. So you throw in your net to the sea, you pull it up, you, you examine all your fish, uh, you do some scientific measurements on them, and you say, oh, that's interesting. There are no fish in the sea any bigger than this. <laughs> you see what's gone wrong. The very process of discovery um, is just, by nature, is designedly, as it were, incapable of capturing any reality bigger than the whole size of the net. And it's a bit like that with science. You can't say, well, as many students to me in the, in the UK when I do school conferences uh, time and time again say things like, well, we don't believe in God because there ain't no scientific evidence of God. You know? And apart from wanting to point out that actually that is somewhat questionable as a statement in and of itself, some people think there is scientific evidence of God and that's a whole other debate. But so what if there isn't? <laughs> um, you can't just assume that science is the only way to know anything and the only rational beliefs are the ones that science justifies uh, um, they're just sort of unthinkingly making that assumption and therefore they don't take Christianity and religion and so on seriously because they think oh you've got to have you know empirical evidence in order to believe in God and that might not be the case at all so I think if this definition is anywhere like on track, science doesn't encompass every way of knowing or everything about we, which we could, in principle, know. Now, how does science relate to theology? Let me, let me start with, sort of step back with the notion of spirituality. Those of you who came to my session on film analysis will be familiar with this. I think a spirituality is a, a way of life, a way of re relating to reality through the combination of your beliefs about reality, your attitudes towards what you think is real, which leads you to behave in certain ways. It is, as you like, the spirituality is the integration of your head and your heart and your hands. You can see that in... Uh, the response of the audience to the first ever persuasive evangelistic sermon preached by Peter in the book of Acts. When the people heard this about Jesus and his death and resurrection, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do in response? They heard things and they formed certain beliefs on the basis of that testimony. They had an attitudinal response in this case a positive one rather than a negative one which have, would have led them to very different behaviour and because they had a positive attitudinal response they were saying brothers what should we do rather than let's stone these guys or something uh, I wasn't the first person to get here uh, Jesus in answering the question about the greatest commandment of course, said it is to love 
the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. Uh, it's put in slightly different ways in the different synoptics, and all of those are pointing back to Deuteronomy 6.5. It clearly means love God with everything you are, uh, but I think when you parse out the different uh, uh, metaphorical meanings of, of things, uh, that it basically breaks down that way. Although, for example, the biblical use of the term heart, which to modern people immediately means, oh, that must be about the emotions, feelings, and so on, um, actually meant... Uh, included the concept of the intellect and, and the will and can have different emphases according to the context and so on. Uh, but basically, I think um, this fits in with that general schema of spirituality that I gave you. And philosophy, the handmaiden of the theology of Christianity, what is a philosopher? I'd say a philosopher is someone dedicated to the wise pursuit and dissemination of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. And if you say to me, well, that doesn't sound too different from a scientist, I'd say to you, exactly, that's because scientists are really natural philosophers. They're <laughs> um, philosophers with a particular focus on an area that means... Um, the methodology of observation of the world and measurement and experimentation and, and so on and repeatability of those things is particularly important to their area of philosophy. So if a Christian is someone dedicated to a, to a Jesus-centered and directed form of spirituality and thinking about that at a sort of intellectual systematic level is the project of theology... And a philosopher is someone dedicated to the wise pursuit and dissemination of true answers to significant questions through the practice of good intellectual habits. You can notice that knowledge is of central concern to both Christianity and philosophy by their very nature. So the question of, of science and religious knowledge, I think, boils down to this. Should our should our theory of knowledge, what philosophers use the long Greek word epistemology to mean, that's just how do we know stuff, uh, should our epistemology encompass science alone? That's how we know stuff. Or should it encompass science and philosophy? So at least you let in sort of philosophy of science and other areas of philosophy maybe. Or could it encompass science and philosophy and theology. So to answer that question, we'd need to ask these questions. Is strong scientism, the, the science alone, epistemology, true? And are there specifically religious, theological forms of knowledge? And I'm going to argue that strong scientism, at one bracket, is false... So we need more than the science alone approach. And that there are specifically religious or theological forms of knowledge. So whether, whereas science is this first order inquiry of, of systematic knowledge about physical reality, strong scientism is one of those second order philosophical views and it's the view that attributes exclusive competency over knowledge to scientific methods. 
And philosopher of science, Dal Ratch, uh, says this. He says, science cannot validate either scientific method itself or the presuppositions of that method, the things you have to believe in order to use the scientific method. Those who claim either that science is competent for dealing with all matters or that science is the only legitimate method for dealing with any matter are seriously confused. And I will point out three reasons, three, I think, knockdown reasons why they are seriously confused. But just to, to show that I am not attacking a straw man here, this really is a view that uh, has cultural capital and is advanced by you know, proper professors with proper positions in proper universities. This is Alex Rosenberg, atheist philosopher of science. Uh, his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he says, the methods of science are the only reliable way to secure knowledge of anything. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge, and so on. Victor Stenger, a physicist who's one of the new atheists, is a bit sensitive to this charge. He says, critics accuse new atheism of scientism, and indeed I would, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They cannot quote a single new atheist who said that. Hmm. Let me give you some quotations, and then let me tell you who these quotations are from. But let's focus on the quotations first of all. These are all from the same source. This person says the following. Faith is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. That's what it means. Okay, that definition is wrong, but that's what he thinks. Science, on the other hand, is belief in the presence of supportive evidence. So it's either faith or science, but depending on whether or not there's supportive evidence. Science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. Okay? He says reason... Oh, maybe this is a new element here. Reason is just the procedure by which humans ensure that their conclusions are consistent with the theory that produced them and with the data that test those conclusions. So reasons about consistency of our scientific process. Being rational just means that when you talk about some subject, the words you use are well-defined and the statements you make are self-consistent. <laughs> I'll reveal in a moment. So, to summarise, it seems to me, see if you agree, that this person, whoever it is, thinks that reason checks the meaning and the coherence of our beliefs about the world to see if they might be true. But there either is or isn't supportive evidence for a belief. And if there is supportive evidence, then that belief is scientific and rational. And if there isn't supporting evidence, then that belief would be blind faith and irrational. Yeah? Doesn't that sound an awful lot like a statement of scientism? I think clearly it is a statement of scientism. It's from Victor Stenger's book, The New Atheism. <laughs> All of those quotes 
are from Victor Stenger. So although he's sensitive to the charge of scientism and says you can't quote any new atheist writer as advancing this view, it seems pretty obvious that Victor Stenger advances this view. (laughs) Sam Harris says the truth is religious faith is simply unjustified belief in matters of ultimate concern. Faith is what credulity becomes when it finally achieves velocity from the constraints of terrestrial discourse. He's a good writer. Constraints like reasonableness, internal coherence, civility and candour. So what have we got here? We've got the the idea of internal coherence. That's the same as Stenger's use of reason. We've got civility and candour. They're moral constraints rather than epistemological constraints, um, which, by the way, Harris thinks science can justify, which it can't. That leaves only the reasonableness that contrasts with the unjustified belief in matters of ultimate concern, i.e. faith. So as Tom Gilson writes, to be reasonable for Harris is practically synonymous with confining one's beliefs to what can be demonstrated by objective, empirical, preferably scientific, evidence. Though he mentions reason as necessary to the project, that's, that's only constrained to... It's about the coherence of the concepts. It's not about what's true about reality. The only way to get at that is through the, the empirical data. Peter Atkins, who was at this event that uh, I first gave a talk like this at, he said, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality. And although its current views are open to revision, the approach, making observations and comparing notes, will forever survive as the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Richard Dawkins thinks that all beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, there is what he calls proper evidence-based belief. He says the the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence, i.e. empirical evidence that there is. It always comes back to our senses one way or another, directly or indirectly. On the other hand, he says there's the improper methodology of blind faith. Faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. Um, Now, I I could go on about how they completely misdefine faith as understood within the Christian tradition and so on. I'm sure you're you're picking that up, uh, but that's not the focus of uh, this talk. As Alistair McGrath here uh, says, uh, Dawkins' very idiosyncratic definition of faith simply does not stand up to serious investigation. In fact, it's, it's itself an excellent example of a belief tenaciously held and defended in the absence of evidence, indeed even in the teeth of evidence, to the contrary. The classic tradition of Christianity has always valued rationality and does not hold that faith involves the abandonment of reason, believing in the teeth of evidence and so on, or at least not uh, overwhelming, sufficiently convincing evidence to the contrary. The the Christian tradition is so consistent on this matter, it's difficult to understand where Dawkins has got the idea of faith as blind trust from. David Marshall and Timothy McGrew, this is a really good recent book responding to the New Atheist's 
uh, True Reason, edited by Tom Gilson and Carson Whitenauer. Uh, McGrew and Marshall say, by faith we mean trusting. Uh, and I tend to try and avoid the, the term faith when I'm talking to, to non-Christians and, and just use, substitute the term trust. Uh, trusting, holding to, acting on what one has good reason to believe is true in the face of difficulties. Not in the face of evidence to the contrary, but in the face of, of the difficulties of life. Um, as C.S. Lewis said, faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. And then he goes on to just, just describe fighting against temptations not to continue believing and acting on what you believe, um, like lust or boredom or what have you. So this scientific demand that every rational belief must be justified by evidence is self-contradictory. And in philosophy, it doesn't get worse than being self-contradictory. That is a knockout blow. You are out of the game, QED. Um, It can't be justified by evidence. It entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied and it is open to obvious and clear counterexamples. And I'll take us through those three one by one. So this demand, you know, in order to be rational, any belief must be supported by empirical evidence. Question, what is your empirical evidence for the truth of that statement? Think about it. Answer, none. (laughs) Therefore, by its own lights, that statement is not rational. So if it's true, it's false. But that's self-contradictory, so it's false. (laughs) The demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence pointing to its truth entails an infinite regress that can't be satisfied. Think of it like this. Is it rational of me to believe belief A? Well, in order for that to be rational, I've got to have evidence supporting belief A. Call that B. Okay, here's B. But am I rational to believe that a set of data B exists? Am I rational to believe that B really does support A rather than, say, A1 or A2. That A really is the the best theory supported by B. Well, in order for those beliefs to be rational, they must be supported by evidence. Call that C. Okay? You can see where this is going. I'm going to run out of letters before I can can fulfil the demand. (laughs) Even if I start inventing new letters, however many I invent, it's not going to be enough. So actually, if you took this rule of scientism seriously, it would make doing science impossible. So scientism is a profoundly anti-scientific philosophical viewpoint. So if you support science, you should ditch scientism. (laughs) Finally, this demand that every rational belief must be justified by empirical evidence 
is open to obvious counterexamples. Uh, many of these concern what, what philosophers call um, properly basic beliefs. Uh, a basic belief is one you hold, rash, uh, you hold, but not on the basis of some other belief or evidence. So, for example, um, look out the window. What, what's just outside the window? Some plants. Okay. Now, what argument did you go through in your brain there? What little argument did you run through to yourself in order to arrive rationally at the conclusion that there are plants outside the window? You, you didn't. You just looked and just found yourself with the belief there are plants there. So that's a basic belief. And indeed, it seems to be completely rational for you to believe that there are plants just outside the window. Even though you haven't got an argument that you've run through, you haven't done any science or what have you, there seem to be things that are completely rational for us to believe without having reasons or, or evidences sort of arguments for them. We just find ourselves with those beliefs given certain experiences or whatever, you know. What did you have for breakfast today? In order to answer that question, you do not need to bring in the forensic science team to pump out the contents of your stomach uh, to do some forensics and arrive at the conclusion, ah, oh, you know, I had toast and scrambled eggs. And very nice scrambled eggs they were too. Um, you just remember. That's a properly basic belief. There are all sorts of things like this. And many of them, you, we can point out, are beliefs that you wouldn't bother doing science or couldn't do science unless you already held these properly basic beliefs. I mean, to, for example, if science is the study of this apparently mind-independent physical reality out there that we're trying to understand, um, that assumes that there is a mind-independent physical reality out there. But no amount of apparent empirical evidence can prove that it's true that there really is a mind-independent physical reality out there. You know, maybe the Eastern religions are right and this is all illusion. It's all maya. Everything is one. There's no distinctions between anything. The chair really is the same thing as me, really is the same thing as the cup. Okay, there's apparent empirical, I'd say properly basic experience, but there's apparent empirical data that we can gather, but that it really is empirical, even, is something assumed by the scientific project, not something proven by it. Or how's this one for messing with your noggin? Um, Bertrand Russell once, once described the, the thought experiment that, well, maybe the world popped into existence five minutes ago complete with every apparent sign of great age. So, although all the trees popped into existence five minutes ago, if we were to saw one open now, we'd see all the rings from years of growth that didn't actually happen. We'd find food in our stomachs from meals that we didn't actually eat. We find memories in our brains from events that didn't actually happen because the world popped into existence five minutes ago, complete with every apparent sign that it's older. Now, that idea is completely compatible with all of the empirical evidence that we could possibly gather by hypothesis. You can't distinguish between that idea being true and it being true that the world is actually a lot older than that. 
And yet, don't all of us think that the world is older than five minutes old? And aren't we all clearly rational to believe that? If you came across someone who truly and sincerely thought that the world had just popped into existence five minutes ago, we'd be calling for the men in white coats, as the phrase goes. Uh, We'd be concerned for their sanity. So, other examples could be given, uh, but I think the point is sufficiently made. As G.K. Chesterton put it, all sane men, I say, believe firmly and unalterably in a certain number of things which are unproved and unprovable. Every sane man believes that the world around him and the people in it are real and not his own delusion or dream. You know, I believe that I am not in the matrix. And certainly, that seems a properly basic rational belief to me and the burden of proof is on you if you want to do a Morpheus and give me sufficient evidence to make me change my mind. But giving me sufficient evidence to make me change my mind simply means giving me more appearances of reality that I trust on a properly basic basis. C.S. Lewis said you cannot produce rational intuition by argument because argument depends on rational intuition. Proof rests upon the unprovable that just has to be seen. You just intuit what the basic structure of a good argument is. If you say, well, I'm sceptical about you know, whether the modus ponens is a logical form of argument. Um, I'm sceptical about all of those truth tables in the philosophy textbook that I've been given. Can you give me a good argument showing that they're true? Well, certainly not without depending on at least one of those forms of argumentation. <laughs> Here's another interesting quote, and then I'll let you know who says it. Uh, Intuition denotes the most basic constituency of our faculty of understanding. It's true in matters of ethics. It's no less true in science. The traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. Just sounds just like C.S. Lewis, doesn't it? Uh, Any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet, says Sam Harris. (laughs) New atheists are not wrong about everything. In his book, The Moral Landscape, he professes to defend moral objectivism, which is a good goal, I approve, but he thinks he can do it by appealing to science, by saying that, look, ethics is about human flourishing and happiness, And that's something that we can measure empirically. You know, if I torture you, you seem to get less happy. (laughs) Basically. Um, Therefore, science can tell us what's right and wrong. But then he also says this on, what is it, page 37. Uh, He says, uh, science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value well-being. Hang on a minute, isn't that... giant loophole in his whole argument. He's just explicitly admitted that science on its own cannot justify belief in objective moral values. But that was the whole point of the book, I thought. So that's interesting. He also says science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal, having this goal, can we justify that scientifically? Of course not. He asks, what evidence could prove that we should value evidence? 
So the need to believe in a moral value in order to motivate the process of science, which self-admittedly, even Sam Harris explicitly admits, science cannot justify belief in the objective moral values that it employs to get off the ground in the first place. Atheist Mary Midgley, uh, in her recent book, Are You an Illusion?, her answer is no, by the way, which is interesting. Uh, she says physical science, then, is not a separate supreme champion outclassing history or philosophy. It has no private line to reality. So scientism is false. And philosophy is required. Indeed, it's required by science. And however detailed our scientific descriptions of physical reality become, note that, that such descriptions are by nature incapable of explaining things like why physical reality has the fundamental structure it has, or why any physical reality described by that structure exists rather than nothing, why any physical reality rather than not and why that kind of physical reality rather than a different kind? And those questions will apply however expansive and detailed a physical description of nature we get. So science inevitably raises philosophical metaphysical questions that require philosophical, metaphysical, indeed perhaps religious answers. Not only is scientism false and philosophy required, but you might think that philosophy can, can warrant, can justify a religious worldview. And you might indeed think that science can warrant premises in philosophical arguments for theism. I'm thinking of things like Greg was talking about last night about the Big Bang theory. You know, Big Bang cosmology justifies the idea that there was a beginning, there was a first event, physically speaking, and so on. And then you think about the nature of causality, philosophically speaking, and that can justify your conclusion that there's some kind of supernatural cause of the universe. There's uh, a whole thriving industry at the moment in philosophy of the return of an interest in natural uh, theology. And much of that is centred upon uh, new scientific discoveries discoveries like Big Bang cosmology, the fine-tuning of the universe, and so on. Uh, atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton says that an argument that starts from the fine-tuning of the fundamental constant, an argument based on the fact that the universe began to exist, an argument based on the improbability of the naturalistic origin of life, are all somewhat plausible, which is an interesting admission to see from an atheist philosopher of science. He says there's at least some weight to those arguments. So scientism is false, philosophy is required, philosophy, you might think, can warrant a religious worldview and science can help. Are there specifically religious or theological forms of knowledge? I think so. I mean, take knowledge gained via religious experience as a paradigm of this. And you start to see how these different subject areas start relating. I mean, science and philosophy might establish together a worldview context that, that leads you to take religious experiences seriously. 
They can be part of your background view of the world that leads you to take such experiences seriously as a way of knowing things. Science and philosophy might study the nature and the content of religious experience. They might, might look at how religious experience affects your brain and your body and so on. Science and philosophy might use the, the existence, the content, the effects of religious experience in that very project of justifying a religious worldview. You might be able to construct arguments for God from religious experience or the, the effects on people of religious experiences. And philosophy might be able to establish that the properly basic rationality of trusting your religious experiences. Um, British philosopher Richard Swinburne coined what he called the, the principle of credulity, which applies to things like trusting your senses, trusting your memory. But he also applied it to trusting your religious experiences. He said, the rational thing to do is to realise that trust is fundamental and scepticism is kind of parasitical upon trust. That when you have if there's a way that the world seems to you to be, the rational thing to do is to think that the world probably is that way until and unless someone gives you sufficient evidence for scepticism about it being that way. So if it seems to me that the projector is on top of a red piece of material draped over a table, that probably is the case. Now, I'm, I'm open to being shown wrong and falsified, and maybe you could come to me and, and show that it's all a massive conspiracy or I've been hypnotised or someone put drugs in my coffee earlier today or so, you know, something that would make me doubt this experience. But the burden of proof, as it were, is on the person calling into question the appearance of reality. And if it weren't, then we'd be in a very deep hole of scepticism about most things. Um, because we'd be sceptical of any evidence advanced to try and support the rationality of believing something. We'd say, well, I must, you know, in order to be rational in believing A, I must have B, the evidence for it. But I shouldn't believe that. I should be sceptical until I have C. And so I'm back into that problem of infinite regress. If we don't start with trusting our experience, and Swinburne says, no reason that he could see why you shouldn't do that with your religious experience as well. So let me end with just three quick examples of religious knowledge. Um, for example, fulfilled prophecy. Seems to me a good example of, of religious knowledge. Um, this is um, Ian Wilson talking about Jesus' uh, prediction of the destruction of the temple. And you could go to plenty of, of Old Testament uh, prophecies and so on about the, who the Messiah would be, what clan he would come from, where he would be born, etc., um, fulfilled prophecies uh, you, know, you don't want to be gullible about these things you would ask obvious historical questions like was this prophecy written down before the event that it's meant to be prophesying um, do we have good evidence that that event actually did happen and so on um, but once you've gone through those you might think that there are a number of examples of clearly fulfilled prophecy and that therefore there were certain prophets who actually knew things about what was going to happen in the future. And how did they know that? By trusting their religious experience. Certainly didn't know it through science. J.P. Morland gives an example, a personal example, of, of a so-called word of knowledge. This is very interesting. Morland is an American philosopher, does a lot of work in the philosophy of mind, 
has written some very good books on the soul and uh, a book of general apologetics called Scaling the Secular City, uh, which is very good. Uh, but Morland tells this story. He says, speaking at a conference of Korean-Americans, uh, Morland asked God if there was anything he should say to the students. He's obviously in, in the habit of praying this. And Morland testifies that by way of a series of thoughts and images that came to me, he came to believe that God wanted him to say this. There's a young man here named Mike, and he had a confrontation with his pastor before he came here and has continued to blame himself for that confrontation, but it wasn't his fault. It was his pastor's fault, and he needs to share with his pastor how much he was hurt by the confrontation. Ooh, thinking that God wants you to say that before an audience and, and saying it, that's a, you know, that takes a step of faith, doesn't it? That's a, a quite radically falsifiable claim, as Karl Popper would have put it. So although he was a little bit worried that he'd never actually met a Korean-American named Mike, it's not a typical Korean-American name, um, Morland felt 70-30 that it was the Lord, he said. So he shared this word with the group and he left. This was at the end of the day's conference and he was coming back the next day. Next morning, Morland comes back to the conference. The conference leader introduces Morland to the only Mike at the conference who had been inappropriately blaming himself for a confrontation with his pastor, uh, who'd said some upsetting and untrue things about Mike and his girlfriend, evidently. Uh, the pastor was arriving at the conference later that day, and Mike resolved to speak to him about the issue. Uh, and one hopes that they were able to, to patch up their differences and, and to heal the rift in the relationship that had been caused by this hurt which was presumably the reason God had for revealing this to Morland. Um, but that seems to be, again, how did... It seems like Morland knew something that was verified in experience after the fact. He didn't know it through science, didn't know it through philosophy. He knew it by trusting his religious experience. And he wasn't even sure about it, but he was sure enough to step out on it. Interesting. One final example, <coughs> Thomas Aquinas. Back to him, we started with Aquinas, and let's end with him. Uh, Thomas Aquinas distinguished between truths known by unaided human reason and truths known by faith. And by faith, by the way, he does not mean things known by blind trust. Okay? Um, but trust in divine revelation. The, the unaided human reason might well warrant the acceptance of certain religious beliefs, like the existence of God, the possibility of miracles and revelation and so on, and might well warrant trust in a purported revelation as actually being a revelation from God. So the fact that you accept something as a revelation from God might be part of what you can know by unaided human reason. There's no opposition between faith and reason here. But as William Carroll explains, Aquinas thought that it was a matter of biblical revelation, of trusting what the Bible said to know that the world wasn't eternal in the past. He thought that reason alone could not conclude whether or not the world had had a temporal beginning. <coughs> but he said that even if the universe were not to have a temporal beginning, it would still depend on God. But he thought the only way that we humans can know that the universe had a beginning was because it tells us that in the Bible. 
Now, Aquinas was wrong about this. But he was also right about this, wasn't he? Um, and I mean that wrong and right in different senses because I'm not contradicting myself. Um, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin, at a conference celebrating Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday recently, said this. All the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. And it's quite a strong statement from a scientist. And it's not. Um, on balance, the majority of the evidence leads us to think that the universe had a beginning. All the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. So Thomas Aquinas was wrong about the powers of unaided human reason here. Unaided human reason is capable of showing, at least once you've developed the scientific equipment necessary, that of course Aquinas didn't have, um, of knowing that the universe had a beginning. And actually independently verifying what Thomas Aquinas, I says to you, knew about the universe, but only knew by trusting divine revelation. So in that sense, Aquinas knew this because of a, a, what you might call a religious form of knowledge. He certainly didn't know it through, through science like we can know it today, um, even though there's a connection between unaided human reason and believing that, because he obviously thought it was reasonable to trust what the Bible said. But just as Morland thought it was reasonable for him to trust his religious experience in that case, just as the prophets in the Old Testament thought it was reasonable of them to trust their own religious experience enough to make these predictions. So, to sum up, scientism is definitely false, it's self-contradictory, it's uh, open to obvious counterexamples, it generates an infinite regress that it can't fulfil. Philosophy is required to do science even. You need philosophy of science. Philosophy can warrant a religious worldview, I would suggest, and indeed science can at least help there. There are what you might think of as specifically religious forms of knowledge, i.e. There's, there's revelation, there's our trust in religious experience. But these aren't a kind of special type of knowledge, uh, a sort of special type of knowledge unto itself, uh, sui generis in, in the Latin. Uh, there are instances of warranted or properly basic trust that are distinguished by the religious nature of the object of trust, i.e. their trust in religious experience or in divine revelation. Uh, and so that's how I would argue for uh, expanding our toolkit of how we know things from just science, as strong scientism claims, to include not only philosophy as well as science, but also religious forms of knowledge. Thank you very much. Okay, we'll hand out these evaluations. And you can ask me some questions whilst you uh, fill those out if you want to. You don't have to. Thanks so much for your That was great. I'm just wondering on a practical level with so much um, YouTube and videos and conferences and debates and things mm. how is, is it just because these guys don't have personal relationships with Christians or is it because they're not doing enough a good enough job of showing them inconsistency right? mm. how do they literally deal with inconsistency I'm sure someone's told Sam Harris on page 24 you said this <laughs> on page 35 well, you said this 
Mm. Yeah. I, I don't know whether anyone has pointed out to Sam Harris that he contradicts himself. I've pointed it out in the public arena. I've written that in, in my books. I've done it in talks, and those talks are on my podcast and on YouTube and so on. But has Sam Harris seen them? I don't know uh, whether he pays attention to, to that sort of thing. Uh, and therefore, I don't know how he reacts to it if, if, if he does. Um, you can certainly, by going to my YouTube channel and, uh, and following up the British Humanist Association and so on, you can see how Atkins and David Papineau uh, responded to my opening talk. It was a little bit frustrating in that there was, wasn't really an opportunity for a sort of comeback at them, because then we moved into a Q&A time where the questions were coming from the audience to us. Um, so there wasn't really much interaction between us. But you can at least see, see their take on defending scientism and make your own mind up as to who made uh, the best case. Yes, sir? Would it be possible to construct kind of um, scientific metaphysics or scientific philosophy uh, understanding that it still doesn't have totally solid foundation, but somehow step by step uh, trying to science support the scientifically constructed metaphysics, then we use it more for scientific research, mm. kind of like this circle. Right, so I, I think that the question is a sort of suggestion about could, couldn't science, in a way, come to validate its own presuppositions, those philosophical presuppositions I was talking about, by, for example, saying, oh, we've noticed that if we do approach trying to understand in, in this methodology, it does work, and that gives us reason to think the methodology is reliable, and therefore the presuppositions of it must be, must be generally reliable, and oh, look, those presuppositions include, say, knowing about the basic laws of logic, or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a certain sense to that one can see. But, for example, um, when one thinks one knows the, the basic laws of logic, uh, one thinks one is, is knowing necessary relationships between things, that one is knowing the necessary conditions for what a good argument is. Um, but science is, by its nature, sort of empirical and inferential. Um, and no amount of inference from experience, as David Hume pointed out, uh, can justify the truth of necessary truth claims. Um, so science might be able to say, oh, look, if we, if we assume these rational principles, um, we make progress in, in science. But that doesn't really account for what we actually know is going on when we know those rational principles. Because we know that in knowing these basic laws of logic and forms of argumentation and so on, we know that we're having a, a, a rational intuition into necessarily true conditions. And we know that we can't get at that through empirical, scientific, inferential means. Um, so there is a, a shortfall between what's, what science by its nature is able to justify and what we actually know is going on in that, in that realm of, of knowing about logic, for example. Um, so there, there's a, a disjunct there uh, that means that I think that approach doesn't really, doesn't really get at the issue. Yeah. When science says that the world's millions and millions of years old, mm. uh, 
they seem to be pretty certain mm. about that. And, and, and I can't figure out how they can actually come up with calculus on it. Okay, so this is a, a question about the, the age of the age of the Earth, age of the yeah. universe, the general age of things. And of course, as in that thought experiment from Bertrand Russell that I, that I pointed out, uh, it, there's a logical possibility that things appear older than they are. And indeed, some Christians have invoked that possibility as a way of getting around uh, the scientific evidence for the apparent great age of the universe. And it certainly seems that the, the, the majority scientific view is that there is every appearance, empirically speaking, of a very great age of things. Um, and the, the debate about whether um, it is legitimate to try and, uh, and get around that evidence, perhaps by invoking a, well, you know, God can do miracles, he could do anything logically possible, it's logically possible that things seem older than they actually are, um, but as other Christians have pointed out against that sort of way of approaching it, that would then mean that God um, is, in a sense, uh, leaving us open to a sort of rather massive delusion about the nature of the reality that he's put us in, that he's giving us a reality that gives every appearance of being a lot older than it actually is. Um, and I guess how you react to that will partly depend upon your your hermeneutic, your interpretation of what Revelation is telling you about that source. So remember when I said when there's an apparent conflict between science and theology, both of which are fallible projects, um, that could be because one or other or both have a misunderstanding. So just as in the Copernicus heliocentric case, it might be that you think that there's really good scientific empirical evidence for a really old universe, an old Earth, and that there isn't comparably strong theological or hermeneutical evidence for a young Earth. You might think that's a, a possible interpretation, but perhaps not the best or not the only, that there are other plausible ways of interpreting that. And so that might lead you to one particular resolution of that apparent conflict. Or you might think, no, I think there's really strong hermeneutical evidence that the Bible is saying that the earth is young and that the uh, empirical evidence from science saying that it's old is insufficiently strong in this case to overcome that. And you weigh up your, your various sources of knowledge just as in any sort of integrative enterprise and you do your best to, to put them together. And this is a kind of approach to the, the science-religion dialogue particularly pioneered by uh, Alvin Plantinger uh, who... Um, I think this is probably in his essays uh, about um, methodological naturalism um, and science and Christianity and so on. Uh, and I think that's right because uh, I don't subscribe with those who say, you know, science and religion are talking about completely different things. Science is about how the world works and religion is about what it means and meaning and purpose and ethics and things. Um, and never the twain shall meet and therefore there's no possibility of conflict between them. Um, there's a certain amount of truth to that, uh, that sort of, they're talking about different aspects of reality thing, because certainly science can't grapple with the ethics or the meaning or the purpose and so on. But I actually think, you know, because Christianity is a revelatory historical um, uh, religion, the Bible does make claims about space-time history that can overlap with the, the fields that science can study. Yeah. 
Peter, what do you say when some of the new atheists claim you can't base knowledge on revelation simply because there's multiple incompatible revelations? And so since mm. they make logically inconsistent claims, we, we, we can't base knowledge on them. What, what would you say is a, is a good response to that sort of... Uh, Mm. Okay, so, so new atheists and so on might say there, there, there are multiple claims of revelation out there that contradict each other. Uh, they can't all be wrong. Indeed, uh, since they contradict each other, at the very least, the majority of them are going to have to be wrong. And doesn't that make it, you know, a priori kind of likely that yours is one of the wrong ones? And how can you trust it? Uh, and so on. I think this is where the, the, the point that um, uh, Aquinas' distinction between what unaided human reason can do and what trust in revelation can do, where you might well say, well, I think one of the things that unaided human reason, as it were, given to us in creation by God, of course, uh, that one of the things that that can do is help us to sort out which revelation claim is the most plausible to accept. <laughs> to ask questions like, uh, does this revelation claim make any empirically testable claims about the world that could be tested through archaeology or historical study and so on and do that archaeology and do that historical study and see whose claims stack up the best um, and then uh, trust the uh, religious uh, revelation claim that does the best by those kind of criteria and then because one has come to trust that, that tradition uh, trust the information within that that, that revelation about things that one cannot independently know it's like any witness that we have who turns out to be reliable in our experience of matters that we can independently know about goes up in our estimation his reliability and we'd come to trust them and rely on them when they tell us about things that we can't independently know about um, and that would be true in a, a court of law or in any everyday relationship and I think would apply to religious revelation claims as well And then I'll come to you. Yeah. I was not kidding when I said uh, Immanuel Kant uh, had, uh, had these phrases. Mm. I do believe that New Atheism has nothing new because mm. they just replicate what Kant said or the modernism, mm. in fact. I found Benjamin Warfield's uh, essay mm -hmm. brilliant about that, how the theology, uh, from the point of mm. view of mm. theology, he would attack this argument of, of Kant. Right, okay, interesting. Um, so to, to replicate for the, for the tape and so on, the gentleman's mentioning uh, that the new atheists' uh, view uh, don't seem very new. They seem very uh, Kantian to him, or very modernist, uh, and is pointing out that um, the theologian B.B. Warfield wrote some interesting stuff against that kind of view. Uh, I would absolutely say um, as I did research for my recent book on, on C.S. Lewis versus the new atheists, where a lot of the new atheists of today actually studied, did their doctoral degrees at Oxford within the intellectual atmosphere that was uh, dominating then because it had dominated when Lewis was a professor and a student there in the, in the early 20th century that the atmosphere of modernism, of logical positivism, the, the, the non-theism of A.J. Eyre and Strawson and so on. Um, and Lewis was colleagues with those guys, and those guys were the doctoral supervisors of folk like Daniel Dennett and A.C. Grayling and, and so on, um, who were just carrying on that early 20th century logical positivism, modernism kind of approach, scientific kind of approach to 
uh, to knowledge and not realising that the academy ditched logical positivism in the sort of mid-1950s and early 60s uh, and that is uh, uh, passé and left behind and, and recognised even by folks who introduced it like A.J. Eyre who introduced it in his book Language, Truth and Knowledge later on in life by the 1970s A.J. Eyre was saying I think there was lots wrong with logical positivism it was full of holes and we need to abandon it uh, but um, you know the Gradings and the Dawkins and the uh, Harrises of the world don't seem to have noticed that. Um, so uh, we're good if we take every opportunity we can uh, uh, to gently uh, but firmly uh, point that out. <laughs> yeah, I think it was you, sir. Who, uh... um, do you know of other, maybe more accessible examples for religious knowledge? Because I think. Every one of it is maybe not really convincing. I don't have any reason to distrust J.P. Morden, mm. but um, to really trust him, I would need to know him. Or um, I think mm. um, every one of the prophecies, um, you can debate about the dating of the texts and examples like Jesus, um, prophecy about mm. the temple, Dostoevsky prophesied that communism Uh, will cause the death of millions. Mm. So mm. if he knew the people in his time, if he had contact with Roman soldiers, um, mm. he doesn't need really um, some kind of divine inspiration to say something like that. Um, so are there mm. maybe examples that will convince anyone who really um, doubts their existence? Right, yes, okay, so the, the, the strength of the examples is going to vary from example to example, and uh, different people will need different strength examples to kind of convince them, as they were, depending upon their prior scepticism, uh, of course. Um, on the prophecy, for example, I, I, I think you could uh, make perhaps stronger arguments by pointing to some of the Old Testament prophecies, because, for example, we, we know for sure that we um, discovered... Um, say the scroll of Isaiah and so on in the Dead Sea Scrolls um, and uh, the dating of those are very firmly um, nailed down historically speaking as, as being hundreds of years before uh, the time of Jesus so that if you're looking at you know, Isaiah 53 or whatever and going through the, the details of what happened in Jesus' passion um, you can be very sure that what was written down there was written down a long time before the events that sure seem to be represented there when you compare, and again, compare to multiple independent testimony uh, from the Gospels and, and the New Testament as to what happened in Jesus' passion. Um, and this is something that I do if you're interested in this. There's a chapter in my book, uh, Understanding Jesus, uh, where I've got a chapter in there on Jesus' fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Uh, and it's been an argument that, that tantalised me for a long time, but I'd, I'd, I'd read folks like um, Josh McDowell, who has used that kind of argument in the past, and to be frank, I thought he was a little bit sloppy <laughs> in his use of that argument. Uh, and it, it worried me, for example, that he would quote an Old Testament prophecy, and I would look it up and I would think, well, that's a little bit ambiguous, that one. I suppose it could mean that, But, you know, it's a little bit Barnum sort of astro astrological in your newspaper statement. And what is his evidence that that actually did happen? One reference from the New Testament. So I went through 
looking at what I thought were, were pretty clear examples of prophecies that were clearly dated a long time before Jesus, that had multiple independent testimony, historically speaking, that they had been fulfilled. I drafted in a, a, a PhD mathematician friend, because I'm no mathematician, to help me run the numbers. We calculated them very conservatively. Uh, I mean, we, we did things like sort of saying, okay, what this prediction about Jesus' garments being gambled for uh, uh, and so on. Uh, you know, let, let's have, you know, one in two people who are crucified during that period have their clothes gambled for. That seems pretty generous. Or, you know, let's, let's have sort of... Uh, uh, people who are executed, how many of them uh, get crucified? Well, let's say one in four of executed people get, get crucified, uh, and so on. We run very conservative numbers. We looked at, I think it was just uh, 15 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in that way. The odds against the chance fulfillment, and also, by the way, we, we, we excluded things like you know, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Because although it's prophesied, and although it clearly happened, Clearly, he deliberately did that in order to fulfill it. So that was right out. Okay? Then we ran the numbers, and the number we came up with this. One chance in 10 to the power of 32. That is roughly, to give you an idea, the number of grains of sand on the planet is about 1 in 10 to the 32, according to scientists. Or the number of stars in the galaxy is about 1 in 10 to the the 32. Um, so, you know, you can run your own numbers if, if you like. You can check the, the, the data and so on. I would invite you to do that. But, uh, but a good place to start might be that, that chapter in my book, Understanding Jesus. If uh, uh, being careful with the argument from fulfilled prophecy is something that interests you. Brand, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, one last question and then I'll hand us back to our room monitor and let us go for... Dinner. Uh, it's in my book, uh, Understanding Jesus, uh, published with Paternoster Press. Um, it's available on uh, all of the Amazon sites. You can order it, for example. And it's also, I, I don't know if that's one of my books that is available electronically for Kindle. Um, several of mine are available on Kindle now. But if it's not, press the I'd like it on Kindle button, please. And the more people that do that, the more likely you are to get it on Kindle and get it cheaper. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I expect if you go to my website, uh, peterswilliams.com, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I've probably got some podcasts on there um, that are relevant to the issue uh, as well. Okay, let me uh, pass back and say thank you very much for your attendance and questions.